This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. So, uh, good morning. Uh, welcome. So glad that you could be here to worship with us this morning. I'm, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I think you probably heard uh, throughout the week if you're around here regularly, but also Ryan mentioned in his prayer uh, that Jennifer Crutcher um, passed away this week after a, a battle with ALS. And um, she is uh, dear to many, many people. And um, we will be having a, a funeral here on Thursday at 4.30, and of course, you're all invited um, to be here for that. I got to meet with uh, Jennifer a number of times over the last year, but um, one time right after um, she had sort of been public with her diagnosis, and I asked her at the end of our time together, what, what can I be praying for you? And um, the thing that still sticks with me is she said, mostly I'd, I'd love for you to pray um, that I would die well and that I would uh, maintain my witness, and that I would die well. And um, that struck me uh, quite a bit, uh, and uh, she, she did. Um, she, she died as she lived well, and um, it's, uh, there's lots of grief um, and sadness associated with her passing, of course, but uh, we grieve as not uh, as those without hope, and so there's a um, lot to rejoice in as well. So anyway, her, her uh, funeral will be here on Thursday at 4.30. Um, any of y'all are invited to be there, but please be praying for the Crutcher family and for Keith in particular uh, as well. But let's pray um, just as we begin our, our time together. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2 uh, this morning, and so let's pray uh, for God's help um, to understand it. Holy Spirit, we do pray and ask that you meet with us. Uh, we know um, scriptures teach that it's your work that uh, inspired the writing of the scriptures, but it's also your work that illumines the meaning of um, scriptural teaching for us as we try to apply it to our own lives. And so we pray that you would come. We pray that you would meet with us here as we try to sit under the teaching of your word. We pray that you would indeed help us to understand and apply these things to our life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it is uh, Pentecost Sunday, as you know, and, uh, and being Pentecost, I was thinking all week uh, about this movie, uh, A Mighty Wind. I don't know if any of you have ever seen uh, the film before. 2003, I think, is when it came out. It's one of Christopher Guest's mockumentaries. Um, it's about three folk bands who are reunited for a television performance for the first time in decades, a, a reunion concert. Uh, of sorts. And I was thinking about it this week because uh, of the title of the film, A Mighty Wind. It's, of course, the title of one of the songs that we sang uh, a little bit earlier this morning about the Holy Spirit. It's the phrase that Luke uses in Acts chapter 2 to describe the Holy Spirit's descent uh, at Pentecost. But I also thought about this movie in relation to Fred Willard's character in the movie. Fred Willard just passed away this uh, last year as well, a uh, comic uh, genius, I would say. He plays um, the manager of one of the bands in this movie, and uh, his character had uh, 15 minutes of, of fame before becoming this manager. In the 1970s, he starred in a sitcom, and as Fred Willard tells it in his way that is, is uh, I'm going to butcher, but he, he uh, in, in his comical way, he says, you know, unfortunately, you know, it was uh, the sitcom was canceled for total lack of interest. People just hated it, he said. But then throughout the film, kind of the running gag is he's trying to resurrect the fame that he had through this character in the sitcom by uh, continuing to repeat the uh, catchphrase 
that was in this character. And it was what happened. So he'd just continually say throughout the film, what happened, you know, all the way through. And I was thinking about that in relationship to our text this morning. And just in general, this notion, what happened, is a pretty good question, right? It's a question we ask in a lot of different situations. For example, uh, September 11th, 2001, I was uh, moving from Ohio to New Jersey. I was driving with my dad, my brother, a U-Haul trailer behind our car with all my belongings packed up in there. We had driven early in the morning. We weren't listening to the radio. We're having a conversation with each other. We blew a tire on the trailer, pulled over to uh, a gas station, and immediately we went inside and we saw all the TV screens and everybody huddled around with buildings smoking and burning. And of course, we had no knowledge of any of this. And so what was our question? What happened? Or another time in college, I went home to visit the family of my uh, college girlfriend. And we were at Thanksgiving dinner. All the family gathered around, her immediate family, but also extended family. Very pleasant experience, it seemed to me. And just between somewhere between the stuffing and the cranberry sauce, uh, somebody made a joke. The, somebody else in the family, an aunt or something, took offense, slammed their food down, got up and stormed out of the house, and all the you know, kids of this person went along by them, and I found myself just looking around like in disbelief. What happened? The Reds played the Giants this Thursday. It was a day game. On my way to a meeting, I listened to the first couple of innings on the radio. When I went into my meeting, the Reds were losing one to nothing. I came out of my meeting, turned on the radio again. The Reds were losing 18 to 1. <laughs> what happened? It's a pretty common question, right? Uh, Acts chapter 2 is trying to give us an answer to that question in relationship uh, to the growth of the church. A messianic figure dies in a nondescript little corner of the Roman Empire, only a handful of followers. And pretty soon afterwards, this movement takes over the Roman Empire, goes out to the corners of the globe. Two billion people today profess to follow Jesus Christ. You can't go into any field of study, be it science or medicine or design or governance or human rights or psychology or uh, poetry or literature where some of the key players have not been influenced or directly intentionally rooted their ideas in faith in Jesus Christ. 120 frightened followers totally changed world. What happened? The answer, Acts chapter 2 will tell us, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit happened. That's what the story of Pentecost is about, the descent of the Holy Spirit onto the church, empowering her for her mission in the world. And this is not just a matter of historical importance, but Pentecost is about a present reality. Is the Holy Spirit happening here? Is the Holy Spirit happening in your life? You see, when the Holy Spirit comes, scriptures tell us things change. The trajectory of lives change. Families change. Old things are made new. And when people encounter a life that's been changed by the Holy Spirit, they may ask, what happened? And so I want to look at this text in three ways. I want to look at it this morning. Uh, three things that happen as a result of the coming, the descent of the Holy Spirit. And we're looking again at Acts chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you're using one of the Bibles in the rows, it's page 909. We're just going to kind of walk things through mostly this morning. So we'll begin with verse 1. But the first thing that we see 
is when the Holy Spirit comes, intimacy with God happens. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, we've been talking about Pentecost all morning long, but in case you're unfamiliar, Pentecost uh, happens seven weeks after the Passover, or 50 days, right? Seven times 749, and then the next day, the 50th day. Pentecostos means 50th. And Pentecost traditionally commemorated two different events in the life of the people of Israel. It was first the Feast of the Harvest, and you can read about that in Exodus chapter 23, and I'll mention it again here in a moment, or toward the end of our sermon this morning. But uh, the first century, uh, by the first century, it was also a commemoration of God's revelation at Mount Sinai. Fifty days after God delivered the people from their slavery in Egypt, God came down and he met them on a mountain. He gave them the law, and there was wind, and there was fire. It was the presence of the living God. And we see something similar here in Acts chapter 2, again, picking up with verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. The word for spirit and the word for breath or wind are really closely linked together in Hebrew and in Greek and even in uh, Latin as well. In fact, it's hard to even say the words for spirit in those languages and not sort of make a wind, you know, with your breath. Uh, ruach in Hebrew, right? Sounds like wind. Numa or spiritus in Latin. In the first verses of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says that the earth was formless and void, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and it's the Spirit, the moving, dynamic breath of God that brings creation into being. And then you just flip over one page in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we see the Lord God forming the man from the ground, from the earth, but apart from the breath of God, he's just dead matter. And so God, we're told, breathes wind into the nostrils of Adam, and he's alive. In the New Testament, in John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless he is born again, unless he's born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is confused by this. How can I climb back into the womb and be born again? This doesn't make any sense. So Jesus explains. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying, just as a physical life with Adam, now spiritual life needs to be breathed into us by God. This is true of individuals. But at Pentecost, we see that the church has no life, hiding away in the upper room, terrified, and then the mighty wind comes and breathes life into the lungs of the church. Without breath, you cannot live. Without the Holy Spirit, neither can the church be alive. John Stott, in his commentary on Acts, puts it this way. He says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. The first picture we get 
the Spirit's descent is that of a mighty rushing wind. But then in verse 3, it goes on and it says, And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So just as in the Old Testament, there's a history to that idea of the Spirit and breath and wind, so there is a history as well of fire in the presence of God. Genesis 15, verse 17, Abraham has a vision of God. God makes a covenant with him, and God comes near to him. And how does God appear to Abraham? He comes as a smoking firepot in the vision. Or Moses, right? When God gets Moses' attention, how does he do it? He does it by appearing in a burning bush, right? When the children of Israel are led through the wilderness, it's in a pillar of fire. And then in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, it says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And when John the Baptist speaks of the ministry of Jesus, Matthew 3, verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water and repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Listen to this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Elton Trueblood wrote a book about the church. What is the church? What, you know, it's, a, it's a theology of the church, a book of ecclesiology. But I love the title he gave it. He called it the Incendiary Fellowship. What is the church? The incendiary fellowship. Those who followed Christ were set ablaze at Pentecost. And then the rest of the book of Acts is about how, as they went out, little fires sprung up wherever they went. Let's keep reading. Verse 4 tells us even more what happens. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And later on in the chapter, we're past where we're going to go this morning, but we get a sermon from Peter. Peter stands up and he begins to preach, and he begins his sermon by quoting from the Old Testament. He quotes from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, and it begins, in the last days, God says through Joel, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And in many ways, this is a bit like the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as Luke tells it in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus begins his ministry, he stands up in the synagogue, he reads from the scroll, he reads from Isaiah 61, and then Luke says, he put the scroll down, and Jesus said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now you get Peter doing almost the same kind of thing. He reads from, not Isaiah 61, but he reads from Joel 2 about the spirit being poured out in this new way, and then Peter says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see, previously the Holy Spirit was involved in the world, but he came to anoint kings or raise up judges or inspire the words of a prophet, but the Spirit, by and large, in the Old Testament would come on people here and there, and then only for a temporary amount of time and usually for a very definite, specific purpose. But Joel says that one day God's Spirit would pour out on all his people in such a way that a new age would begin. And Peter says, that starts now, the age of the Spirit. And he, could have, he quoted from Joel 2, but he could have quoted from other places as well. He could have quoted from Isaiah 32, verse 15, where it says, the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness will become a fruitful land. Or Jeremiah 31, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and how will it be written on their hearts? By the, by the Spirit. Or Ezekiel 36, 
I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, Pentecost is not just the birthday of the church. It's the beginning of a new age of God's work in the world. And John Murray put it this way. He said, Pentecost cannot be repeated, but neither has it been rescinded. You hear that? Pentecost, we shouldn't be expecting the same kind of experience as Acts 2, but listen, it, it can't be repeated but neither has it been rescinded, meaning the Holy Spirit is still the life and the breath of the people of God. We live now in the age of the Spirit. God has come to dwell with his people. The New Testament refers to the church and followers of Jesus as temples of the living God, the place where God's Spirit has come to dwell. And so when the Holy Spirit comes, we first learn that intimacy with God happens. But secondly... When the Holy Spirit comes, we see that healing happens. Let's pick up with verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now when New City uh, had our first worship service 12 years ago or whatever it was, uh, I don't even remember having this discussion, actually, when we were getting together and planning it out. We, uh, we, we preached in English, and we, most of our music was in English, and uh, you know, we didn't have much of a discussion about it. But that has a natural limitation to it, right, to choose a language and to worship in that language. I went to a church uh, in the Netherlands, in uh, The Hague, when I was living there. It was an international church. Um, People from all over the world were there, and that church worshiped in three languages. But even there, that's a limitation. There are more than three languages that were spoken in The Hague, more than three languages even in that congregation. But on the first day of the church that Jesus planted, the first day that they met for worship, he refused to choose one language or one culture to minister in. If it had just been in Hebrew, or if it had just been in Aramaic, or if it had just been in Greek, the signal would have been that there was one primary culture or one primary people that God was coming to and that everybody else would sort of glom on to that. But on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and shows the world that the gospel is for every tongue and every tribe and every people and every nation. The first worship service of the church is multilingual, multicultural, multiracial in the extreme. And I say that healing happens because we all know that the world is plagued by division and alienation, especially, although not entirely, but especially along ethnic, racial, cultural, and national lines. But here, Acts chapter 2 is emphasizing, Luke is emphasizing the international nature of the crowd that was there. In verse 5, he says that there were people from every nation under heaven. Now, almost certainly, this is not to be taken literally. They're probably not Aboriginal Australian peoples that were there, right? There were not Mayans from Central America there. Otherwise, I think they would have highlighted that, uh, I'm guessing. But Luke here is speaking, as the biblical writers often do, from his own horizon. He's referring to the whole of the Greco-Roman world and to those places where Jews had spread out and lived in the diaspora and would be coming back to Jerusalem for the Pentecost festival, and so we won't go through it all here, but he takes the time, Luke does, to list 
uh, at least five groups of people in verses 9 to 11. This becomes kind of a, a table of nations that in some ways uh, a lot of the commentators believe is meant to mirror the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. So he mentions the Parthians and the Medes. In other words, folks from, who live near the Caspian Sea. Mentions five different areas of what we would call today Asia Minor or Turkey. And then North Africa, Egypt, and Libya. And then visitors from Rome, he mentions. And then finally Cretans and Arabs. In other words, a multinational, multilingual crowd. And the Holy Spirit works so that they all hear the gospel in their own language. There's no home language for the church of Jesus Christ. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, the gospel can come and inhabit those cultures and those languages. The practical ramifications of this, the church has never completely worked out. We've seen, as we've gone through this whole series, looking through the book of Acts, we've seen the church struggle in the first century to figure out how this works out, and we still struggle today. But Acts chapter 2 shows us the design. The Holy Spirit comes to bring healing between peoples. I mentioned Genesis 10 earlier. Well, Genesis 11 very much mirrors what's happening in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, at Babel, humanity tried to ascend to heaven. You remember? At Pentecost, heaven comes down to earth. In Genesis 11, people rebelled against God. They tried to make a name for themselves, and their languages were confused and divided. In Acts chapter 2, people are brought back together. They're able to understand each other by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit in order to what? Not make a name for themselves, but to call upon the name of the Lord. The reversal of the Tower of Babel. But it's not just racial and cultural lines where healing comes. In general, it's a mark of a spirit-filled church that people get along inside the church who would have a really hard time getting along outside of the church. So in the church, there should be, you know, bookish people and movie people or whatever, Netflix people are. Uh, There should be Democrats and Republicans. There should be Bengals fans and Steelers fans, as hard as that is to say. Should be artists and hunters. There should be NASCAR enthusiasts and environmentalists. I, none of these things are necessarily mutually exclusive, right? I don't know. The point being, when the Holy Spirit is at work, people learn to love each other inside the church who would not normally get along with each other outside the church. And then the question then comes to us Is there somebody that you love solely because the Holy Spirit? has given you love for them. Is there anybody in your life you could say, like, on the externals, I I probably can't just, it wouldn't make sense. The Holy Spirit's given me love. Someone you would have had nothing to do with, and yet God has given you sincere and true love and compassion for them. It's an evidence of the Spirit. But not only that, but the Holy Spirit can lead you to love someone who has done you wrong. Not just somebody who's different, who's hard to get along with, or has different interests or backgrounds or beliefs uh, about particular things, but the Holy Spirit can lead you to love someone who has done you wrong. The Holy Spirit can bring incredible capacity for mercy and forgiveness. One of the most incredible examples of this that that, that I've seen is uh, Kim Fook, uh, one of the best-known photographs 
of the Vietnam War shows a group of children running down a road after napalm was dropped on their village. Among the children is a naked girl, her arms spread apart, badly burned, her face full of terror. This one Pulitzer Prize, this photograph. And Kim Fook is the girl in the picture. And a number of years ago, she recorded a segment for StoryCorps for, um, for NPR. And this is what she said. I'm just going to read it to you. Kim said, on June 8th, 1972, I ran out from Khao Dai Temple in my village, Trang Beng, South Vietnam. I saw an airplane getting lower and then four bombs falling down. I saw fire everywhere around me. And then I saw the fire over my body, especially my left arm. My clothes had been burned off by fire. I was nine years old, but I still remember my thoughts at that moment. I would be ugly, and people would treat me in a different way. My picture was taken that moment on road number one from Saigon to Phnom Penh. After a soldier gave me some drink and poured water over my body, I lost consciousness. Several days after, I realized that I was in the hospital, where I spent 14 months and had 17 operations. It was a very difficult time for me when I went home from the hospital. Our house was destroyed, we lost everything, and we just survived day by day. Although I suffered from pain, itching, and headaches all the time, the long hospital stay made me dream to become a doctor. But my studies were cut short by the local government. They wanted me as a symbol of the state. I could not go to school anymore. The anger inside me was like a hatred as high as a mountain. I hated my life. I hated all people who were normal because I was not normal. I really wanted to die many times. I spent my daytime in the library to read a lot of religious books to find a purpose for my life. One of the books that I read was the Holy Bible. In Christmas 1982, I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal savior. It was an amazing turning point in my life. The Holy Spirit came in and God helped me to learn to forgive the most difficult of all lessons. It didn't happen in a day, and it wasn't easy, but I finally got it. Forgiveness made me free from hatred. I still have many scars on my body and severe pain most days, but my heart is cleansed. Napalm is very powerful, but faith, forgiveness, and love are much more powerful. We would not have war at all if everyone could learn how to live with true love, hope, and forgiveness. If that little girl in the picture can do it, Ask yourself, can you? Napalm is very powerful, but the healing presence of the Holy Spirit is much more powerful. When the Holy Spirit comes, intimacy with God happens, healing happens, and finally, mission happens. In verse 4, the Spirit comes on them. It says, like tongues of fire... And then why? Do you ever wonder why it's described as tongues of fire? It may be because of the way it looked to people, but also because of what immediately happened afterwards. What did they do afterwards? They began, what? To speak. Immediately the Spirit comes and falls on them. And what do they do next? They begin to speak. The Spirit moves them into mission with others. And evidence of the Holy Spirit is working in your life is when we begin to turn away from self-absorption and instead focus on the mighty works of God and move into the world and mission. I mean, again, think of the disciples. Even after three years with Jesus, when they got a free moment, what did they talk about? Wow, I wonder which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, right? Isn't that what they talk about? When they got a free moment, and they got a moment alone with Jesus, hey, Jesus, uh, 
you know, when we come into your kingdom, can I have the most prominent place? In other words, self-advancement was still on their minds, right? A kind of self-absorption. Or if not that, then at least self-preservation, fear, and hiding. But when the Holy Spirit comes, they're changed. They boldly profess their faith. Get this, they do it in the middle of Jerusalem, in a public space, in the same city where just 50 days earlier, their leader had been executed in a gruesome manner. Has the Holy Spirit begun to change your passions, your priorities, so that when you think about, for example, where you'll move or who you'll marry or what job to take or how much to spend on a house or whatever, all those things are run through the lens of how we're called to live on mission for God. Remember earlier that I said that Pentecost had come to celebrate, uh, come to have the meaning or significance of celebrating God's uh, uh, meeting the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, but, but also Pentecost had another meeting, in fact, an older meaning even than, than that symbolism, is that Pentecost had to do with the Feast of the Harvest. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 23. And so the harvest would begin just about seven weeks after Passover. And this was a time for the people to get together and recognize God has been faithful. Yet another year, we have a harvest. God is faithful, so let's celebrate what he has supplied. It's no accident that Jesus often talked about mission in those terms, terms of a great harvest. Remember, he said the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. So here, the Spirit of God comes at the harvest feast in order to send his people out into the harvest field of mission. The Holy Spirit descends, and they begin to speak immediately. They begin to talk about the mighty works of God. And what do they say? Well, verse 11 says, we hear them telling in our own language, in our own tongues, of the mighty works of God. And that word that's translated there, mighty works, is the word megaleia. Megaleia, which literally means mega works. So what is it that they spoke about? What is it that they talked about? What is it they thought was so important they couldn't keep it to themselves when the Spirit had worked in their life? It was the mega works of God, especially what he had done to save them. We know this from Peter's speech that's recorded for us in the end of Acts chapter 2. It talks about Christ's incarnation, his death, and his resurrection. So an evidence that the Holy Spirit is involved in your life is not just that it pushes you into mission, that it pries you out of your self-absorption, but that in particular, you're gospel-centered in your proclamation. You see, every other religion, as far as I know, the teaching is mainly about how you can get to God, how you can get to God, how you can work toward being righteous, how you can be moral, rules and regulations, or maybe even just spiritual techniques. But when the Holy Spirit comes, the message is not what we should do. The message is what God has done. At the center of their mission was a declaration of the mighty works of God. Not what we should do, but what he has done in order to rescue us. And I want you to notice also here, as we're finishing up, that the Spirit does not just send them into mission but the Spirit also equips them for this work of mission. Verse 7, it says, um, the people are looking on, it says they were amazed and they're astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So 
the miraculous work of the Spirit here gives them the gift of tongues so that they can communicate in languages that they had never studied before. But it's interesting that they highlight those who are speaking Galileans. See, Galileans were generally considered to be uncultured. God used Galileans to change the world. You know, Israel itself was a small, tiny, relatively insignificant part of the Roman Empire. Well, Galilee was a small, tiny, relatively insignificant part of Israel. So small and out of the way, out of a small, out of the way place. Remember, there's a saying, you know, what good can come from Nazareth? Well, Nazareth is in Galilee. Point being, a Holy Spirit does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. The Holy Spirit doesn't just go around and look for the best, the, the choice uh, candidates for mission, but he equips those that he called. He equips the people for the work of ministry. And sometimes that happens in extraordinary ways, as on this day at Pentecost. More often, the Spirit equips us in very ordinary ways, putting you in the right place at the right time, giving you connections to people who really need your help, providing you with a story to tell or resources to share or time to give, just giving you eyes to see the needs of others around you. When the Holy Spirit comes, mission happens. So the question for us all is, are you engaged in God's mission If your heart is not oriented toward the mission of God, then we need to ask the Holy Spirit to come. I gotta get one U2 quote in here. Uh, Bono says, religion is what you have left when the Holy Spirit has left the building. It's a good Pentecost quote. Religion is what you have left when the Holy Spirit has left the building. In other words, there's more to Christianity than religion. There's a lot of religion in the world. There's nothing that special about religion, right? That doesn't make us unique. But at Pentecost, the spirit of the living God came to indwell his church, and he indwells her still. And so perhaps the application for all of us this morning is to call out for the Holy Spirit to move in us, to call out for the Holy Spirit's work to be manifest in us, to call out for the Holy Spirit to move through us to meet the needs of other people, to engage, to to make God glorious in the way that we live, the way that we call attention to him. No matter how many programs we design or dollars we give, without the Holy Spirit, it's just gonna be limited. It's gonna be human. So we need to call out for the Spirit's work John Stott put it this way. He said, the wind and the fire were abnormal, probably the languages too, the new life and joy, fellowship and worship, freedom, boldness, and power were not. These are things we ought to be calling out for, for the Spirit to produce in us even now. So let's pray together and let's ask for God to do that even now as we continue to worship this morning. Spirit of the living God, We pray that you would fall fresh on us. Would you bring the presence of God deeply into our lives as individuals and deeply into our life together as a church family? Would you bring us into the joyous healing of alienated relationships? Would you display the glory of God in a people brought together who would never be together under ordinary circumstances? Lift our eyes from self-absorption and self-preservation and Send us on mission in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. And Spirit, as we come out 
from the more significant pandemic restrictions and enter into something that resembles at least something more normal. May our mission be stronger and more effective than ever before. Spirit, thank you. Would you fall fresh on us? Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.